so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. This week, we'll hear from David Platt. He was calling them to engage a broken world with a glorious gospel. And so in a culture that devalues life and denigrates children, we don't sit back and stay silent. We stand up and speak clearly. Each of us, we go right where we live, wherever God leads. We go to women who are struggling to see how life even goes on if they have this baby. We go to them. We love and serve them. We care for them as we come alongside them. We go to men who are encouraging their pregnant girlfriends or even wives to have an abortion. We stand alongside them. We help them see the glorious work of creation that God has begun in this precious woman's womb. The pro-life movement is often viewed as an isolated issue, even within Christian culture. At our Evangelicals for Life conference, David Platt gave a message titled, Jesus Loves the Little Children, Connecting the Sanctity of Life and the Great Commission. Here, Platt argues that fighting for the unborn has everything to do with fighting for salvation. We hope you find this message helpful. little children, connecting the sanctity of life and the Great Commission. So my wife, Heather, and I desired to have children for many years, and over the course of those years, uh, month after month, year after year, found ourselves disappointed and heartbroken as God was not providing children in the way we were hoping And so, in the process of not having children biologically, he led us to consider adoption. At that point, I would have said, this is second best. Since we can't have children this way, we'll have children this other way. I learned real quickly, though, that adoption was just as best. So, we began this process of adoption from Kazakhstan. I'm not sure if I really knew Kazakhstan existed before that process, where we put a map on the table, we prayed about where we might adopt a child from, and somehow, in God's kind providence, he led us to this country, where we traveled and met a 10-year-old little boy named Caleb. His name wasn't Caleb at that point. It had a lot of consonants, and we could not pronounce it, so his name is now Caleb. We adopted Caleb and came home from Kazakhstan with him, About two weeks later, I came home late one night for a meeting at church, and Heather was still awake. She usually goes to bed early, and so I could tell something was was out of kilter, and so uh, 
She said, as she sat in the den, she said, you need to sit down here on the couch. I said, okay. She said, I've got something to share with you. I said, I'm waiting. And she said, you're not going to believe this, but I am pregnant. I said, how did that happen? Uh, Obviously, I know how that happens. Uh, Apparently, what happens in Kazakhstan doesn't stay in Kazakhstan. So, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. That was not particularly helpful. Um, But... uh, so I, I, I look at her and I say, <laughs> and we, neither of us saw this coming. And we'd been told at every step in the adoption process not to get your hopes up. Because you never know, um, you know what might happen at the last minute even for an adoption to fall through. And so we decided for, uh, for whatever reason all these years we hadn't been able to have children biologically. So we didn't know if this was going to go uh, full term. So we just said, all right, let's, let's just decide right now not to get our hopes up. Um, so we kind of made that decision that night. And so for the next month, we didn't get our hopes up. Next two months, hopes not up. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine months later, hopes still not up. Heather is still pregnant. And so I come home again late one night from a meeting at church, and she's awake, and she said, I'm not feeling very good. And we both said, well, I'm sure it's nothing. And so we go to sleep, and she wakes me up in the middle of the night. She says, I'm sure it's nothing, but I think we need to go to the hospital. So... We got in the car, we go to the hospital, this is a cold December night, um, which I mentioned that detail because it was a bit ironic, when we got to the hospital, the hospital did not have enough room for us on this cold December night. (laughs) And so he said, "Uh, okay, is there stable outside, like... uh, so they stuck us in a closet and uh, hooked Heather up to all these machines and said, we'll monitor you, see what happens from here. Well, uh, a couple hours later, they come back and uh, wake us up and say, we need to get you in a room as fast as possible. You're going to have a baby today. And at that point, Heather and I uh, locked eyes with one another and decided it was time to get our hopes up. <laughs> so we, uh, we moved us into a room. Uh, just a little bit about me. I am not very good at hospitals. I don't. Uh, do well in hospitals. I get, I'm getting nauseous right now at the thought of a hospital, which is not good for me in pastoral ministry. But nonetheless, Heather knew this and that I kind of struggle in hospitals. And so she had told me a few weeks before that she was praying for me and how I was going to do in this whole birthing process. And it was a, if I could be honest, a bit of a shot at my pride that my wife is concerned not so much for herself or for our child, but for me in this process. And so that had kind of stuck with me. And so we're getting settled in the room, and the, um, the doctor starts talking with Heather about the doctor who's, or the nurse starts talking with Heather about the doctor who's going to deliver our baby and how he actually lets the husbands help deliver the baby if they would like to. That's what my wife did. She laughed. Rolled her eyes. She said, well, uh, my husband would never do that. Again, shot number two at the pride. And I decided this was my moment. (laughs) And it was one of those times where words start coming out of your mouth and you can't stop them. But they just started flowing out. And I just blurted out, well, I'll help deliver the baby. And uh, Heather looked at me with wide eyes. She said, you will? I said, well, of course. Who wouldn't want to deliver a baby? And... (laughs) Uh, so the nurse said, I'll get things ready. She turns and starts getting all these preparations. I turn and think, what have I just done? I'm sick to my stomach standing in this room, and now I'm about to deliver a child. So I decided I needed to come up with a, a game plan. 
Uh, so this was the game plan I came up with. I decided I was going to look at this like it was a mission trip. Okay, so follow with me here for a second. Like, if you've ever been on a trip to another country, you know, you do things you don't normally do on a mission trip. You eat things you don't normally eat. You drink things you don't normally drink. So when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. When you're in the hospital, you do what doctors do. And they deliver babies. And so, besides, I have a doctorate. Uh, <laughs> granted, it's in theology and preaching, but what does it really matter? In the end, it's all the same. Doctor, doctor. So, uh, so I just said, okay, I'm in another country right now. And this is what they do in this, this foreign country that deliver babies. So this is what I do uh, here on this trip. So, uh, so it came time. The doctor comes into the room. He straps some gloves, a gown, and a mask on me. He gets in my face and for about 60 seconds, uses, 60 seconds uses all this medical jargon that I do not understand. He said, do you understand? I said, yes, sir. And, uh, and he said, so just be standing behind me when it's time. So I'm standing right there. And when it's time... Uh, he says, all right, I want you to reach down. I want you to put your right hand on top of your left hand. It was like Peyton Manning. <laughs> they got nurses flanking me. You right here. You right here. We're going to do this. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, out pops this little head and time stands still. As this child we've prayed for for years. I, I pull out and place on my wife's lap with our child from Kazakhstan in the waiting room beside. Children are so precious. They're a treasure to be cherished. And yet we live in a country and a culture where children are a problem to be avoided. Just this week, I was having a conversation with someone involved in pro-life movement, learned of a court case in which defenders of abortion were claiming that pregnancy is akin to an unwanted disease in a woman's life. Therefore, abortion is nothing more than a remedy for a sickness. Whether it's court arguments or undercover videos, we find ourselves surrounded by a culture that devalues, disregards, mistreats, and ultimately murders children. And so we're reminded of Matthew 19, 13-15, when children were brought to Jesus, and he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. When even Jesus' disciples saw children as a nuisance to be avoided, Jesus saw them as a treasure to be welcomed, to be received, to be loved cherished he laid his hands on them you can only imagine jesus playing with them and praying for them and then nine chapters later in matthew's gospel we hear these words from jesus all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does Jesus' challenge in Matthew 28 have to do with Jesus' value for children in Matthew 19? I think these passages have everything to do with each other. For into a culture that devalues children, Jesus has given his followers a clear commission. A commission that I'm convinced has everything to do with the sanctity of human life. Consider his commission. Go. Christ compels, calls, commands us to go into the culture around us. The Great Commission was clearly and definitively not a call to sit back and stay silent in a world of sin, evil, and suffering. It was a call to stand up and speak clearly in a world of sin, evil, and suffering. It's what he had told them in Matthew chapter 10. Go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. In other words, go to the sick, to the dying, to the diseased, go to the dangerous. Go when it's not easy, go when it's costly. I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. People will hate you because of me. When they persecute you, do this. Not if they persecute you, but when they persecute you, do this. From the very beginning, Christ designed for his disciples to run toward need, not away from it. To engage culture, not to ignore it. I wonder how much we've missed this. I wonder how much in the church, instead of discipling Christians in the world... We are disinfecting Christians from the world. Here's what I mean. We have in the church a dangerous tendency to focus on disinfecting Christians, isolating them in a spiritual safety deposit box called a church building where we teach them to be good. And in this strategy, we define success in our churches by how many people we can get into our buildings where we can insulate and isolate ourselves for a couple hours every week from the realities of the world around us. And in that building, we're taught to be good, which is basically defined by what we avoid in the world. Holiness, defined by what we don't participate in, at this point may be one of the only organizations in the world to define success according to what we don't do. So we live decent lives in decent homes with decent jobs and decent families as decent citizens. And in it all, we're decent church members who have little to no meaningful engagement with or impact on the world around us. Discipling is much different. Whereas disinfecting Christians involves isolating them from the world and teaching them to be good, discipling Christians involves propelling Christians into the world to risk their lives for the gospel. Now the world around us becomes our focus. And we gauge success in the church, not by the hundreds or even thousands who we can get to enter our buildings, but on the hundreds or even thousands that are leaving our buildings to take on the world with the power of the gospel. All of a sudden, holiness is defined by what we do. We're now a community of faith in Christ, taking him at his word as we engage with the world, even when it costs us. Be be sure of this. When Jesus said these words to his disciples in Matthew 28, he was not telling them to come down off that mountain, mountain, huddle up in small groups, and disciple each other for the rest of their lives. He was calling them to engage a broken world with a glorious gospel. 
And so in a culture that devalues life and denigrates children, we don't sit back and stay silent. We stand up and speak clearly. Each of us, we go right where we live, wherever God leads. We go to women who are struggling to see how life even goes on if they have this baby. We go to them. We love and serve them. We care for them as we come alongside them. We go to men who are encouraging their pregnant girlfriends or even wives to have an abortion. We stand alongside them. We help them see the glorious work of creation that God has begun in this precious woman's womb. We go to women, we go to men, we go to children, to the thousands of children in mothers' wombs right now whose futures are in doubt. We go to the unborn. We work for the unborn. We labor for the unborn. We don't sit back content to wring our hands in pious concern while thousands of babies are dismembered and destroyed around us when Christ's commission compels us to go. And to baptize So what does baptism have to do with the sanctity of life? Well, think about it. Baptism is a new Christian's initial public declaration of faith in Christ. Who died for our sin, rose to new life. This, without question, is the greatest need in every single man, woman, and child's heart in the world. Every single one of us in this room, every single person in the world is a sinner who has turned from God's way to our own way. Abortion is just one way among thousands that we have all, we have all in different ways said our way is better than God's way. And in this way, we have all sinned against God and we all stand guilty before him. And the greatest news in all the world is that God loves us anyway. That he loves us so much that he sent his son to pay the price for all our sin. Jesus on a cross took all the judgment due you and me in our sin upon himself. He died the death we deserve to die. Then he rose from the dead. We're not talking resuscitation or reincarnation. We're talking resurrection. We're talking not talking went to heaven, came back, wrote a best-selling book about it. We're talking dead for three days. Then walking around alive. We're talking You go to a funeral tomorrow and you see a man's body put in a coffin and in a grave and dirt poured over that coffin and you walk away and Monday next week that guy comes up to you on the street and says hello. That's unusual. (laughs) It's the greatest news in all the world. Sin and death have been defeated. It's so If sin has been conquered and death has been defeated and eternal life is available to all who will turn from their sin and trust in Him, then we go and we proclaim this good news so that men, women, and children around us might hear it and believe it. And in so doing, Garrett put this so well, in so doing, receive an entirely new new heart now hardwired to want God's way instead of our way. A new heart that desires what God desires, that loves what God loves, including children in the womb. You see it. The power of the gospel possesses a dynamic charge that detonates the heart's desire for abortion. 
When men and women are brought from blindness to light, spiritual death to spiritual life, powerfully portrayed in this picture of baptism, everything changes. I'm convinced the first and most fundamental way we can combat abortion is through proclamation of the gospel. And then to take it a step further, because baptism is not only a new Christian's initial declaration of faith in Christ, it's also that new Christian's public identification with the body of Christ as a member of his church. The church, a community of men and women who care for one another and serve one another and bear one another's burdens and lay down one another's lives for each other. For every man, every woman, considering the abortion of a baby, One of their greatest needs, without question, is community. A community of people who will care for them as friends. A community of people who will love them as family. A community of people who will help them and serve them and not give up on them through months of pregnancy and years of parenting. And God has uniquely designed and equipped His church to care for children and their mothers. There's a reason why James 1.27 says, religion that God our Father looks at as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. I remember seeing that text come alive in the church. God gave me the privilege of pastoring. James is quite a book to preach through. Uh, you can't just hear what it says. You've got to do it. And so we come to that text, we read it, and we say, well, what do we do? And so I called up the Department of Human Resources in our county and said, uh, when it, do you guys have any needs in your foster care when it comes to you know, how you're caring for kids? Do you have any needs for help? And the sweet woman on the other side of the line laughed. And she said, we have so many needs. I said, well, how many people would it take to meet all the needs you have in our county. And she laughed again. I said, no, really, how many people would it take? And she said, we, we probably need 150 more people. And I thought, they're operating day by day, 150 people short. And so I came back to the church and I said, we've seen this in the Word. This is the picture in the world around us. So we're going to have an informational meeting in a couple of weeks. And all who are interested in Caring for children in the foster care system. We want you to come, give you information. And so we set that meeting up. A couple weeks later, we gathered together in our auditorium. And people began streaming in for the meeting. And that night, over 150 people signed up to say, we want to make sure that every child in our county is cared for. And I remember this sweet woman from DHR in the back of the room with tears streaming down her face looking at me and saying, Pastor, what made you decide to do this? And I had the joy of looking back at her and saying, "Uh, I didn't decide to do this. God decided that these children and their moms are important to him. And he's the one who's calling his people to do this. It's what happens I'm convinced when disciples of Jesus join together in community and decide to engage the culture, when they decide to go and to baptize, to proclaim the greatest news in all the world in such a way that people's lives are changed, new community is formed, a community that embodies the love of Christ, teaches the word of Christ, teaching them, Jesus says, to obey everything I've commanded you, 
This is where the transformation of the mind and heart just goes to an entirely new level as the whole counsel of God comes to bear on an issue like the sanctity of life. Reading through the Bible. All it takes is one chapter to realize what we saw in that video that God has made every human being in His image, in His likeness, with a unique capacity to know Him and relate to Him and reflect Him. One book later, we see how God places value on the child in the womb. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Only to see in the verses that follow how God fashions us in the womb. Job 31. Knows us in the womb. Jeremiah 1. Calls and names us from the womb. Isaiah 49. And before long, our hearts are resounding with the psalmist's prayer. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. By the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, we begin to see ourselves as God saw us before we were even born. Do you see how obedience to the Great Commission, disciple-making, leads men, women, and children to treasure the sanctity of life? And Jesus says, do this then in all nations, among all the ethne, all the people groups of the world. Don't stop in this culture. Do this across cultures. Go throughout China where child restrictions for years have led to multiplied abortions. Go throughout India where gender discrimination has led to the discarding of baby girls. Go to Greenland where some estimate abortions now outnumber actual births among pregnant women. Go to the nations. Proclaim this gospel, this good news of one creator God who made us and formed us, who rules over us and reigns over us, against whom we rebelled. Tell them, though, that God loves us and He's made a way for us to live forever with Him. Tell them how much He values life. Tell them about His gift of eternal life. Go and proclaim this good news among the nations and gather believers together in the close-knit community where they care for one another and they teach one another and together they display the gospel to their surrounding culture. I think about my role in, right now, presently leading churches to take the gospel to places where it's never been heard. I think about one particular area where we've been working in northern India where uh, the gospel... For most people, uh, most of the millions of people in this state in northern India, the gospel has not yet reached them. They've never heard it. And so, there's a few Christians there. Not a lot. We've gathered together a small number of Christians and tried to encourage and train and equip them to share the gospel with others in a very difficult setting. One of those trainings, uh, two brothers, Anil and Hari, brothers in Christ, are there. And often discouraged in their faith, they come to this training. At this training, they're encouraged to find a village where there's no Christian, no church, no gospel. And uh, get in a group of two, go into that village. And the first person that comes up to you, uh, just say to them, Hi, we're here in the name of Jesus and we would like to pray for your village. And then see what happens from there. And Anil and Hari look at each other and said, This will never work. But then they looked at each other and said, Nothing we do ever works. So we might as well try it. So they got together and they went out one day into a village. No Christian, no church, no gospel witness ever gone to this village that they knew of. They walk into the village. As they're walking through, nobody even talks to them. They're thinking, we knew this wouldn't work. 
They get to the end of the village. Finally, a guy comes up to them and says, what are you guys doing here? So they start their prescripted line. Hi, we're here in the name of Jesus. And we, before they could finish the rest of their line, this man stops them and says, did you say Jesus? I've heard a little bit about him. Can you guys tell me more? And Neil and Hari, yes, we can tell you more. So they start to tell him, and the guy stops them. And Neil and Hari are thinking, oh, great, here it goes. It's going downhill. But the guy says, wait, I really want my friends and family to hear what you have to say about Jesus also. Can you tell not just me, but them? Anil and Hari? Yes, we can do that. So they follow this man to his home. He sits them down. He goes, gets friends and family. They come back. They gather around and say, now please tell us more about Jesus. So they begin to share about Jesus, who he is, what he has done for our salvation. And first time this gospel has been proclaimed in this village. And long story short, within about two weeks, about 20 people in that village turn and put their faith in Christ. Which is a, yes, which is... Clap worthy until you then begin to realize what happened next. Because Anil and Hari look at these 20 new believers and they said, uh, all right, you're going to get in groups of two. And uh, you're going to find another village and you're going to go in and you're going to say this line. And you're not going to think it's going to work. But uh, worked on you guys. So, uh, so you go in the other villages to do that. That was three years ago. Three years later, churches have started in 350 different villages in this part of northern India. So, and and I've, I've worshipped in some of these churches, met some of these believers. And, I mean, churches filled, villages filled with all kinds of social needs. And so to worship the church and to have a Christian tell me how they came to Christ... And then to say, you don't realize, our village, this was the exact quote, he said, our village was like hell until we heard the gospel. This gospel is good. It has power to transform lives and families and communities for the glory of Christ. See it. Obedience to the Great Commission has massive implications for Social transformation. After more than a decade of research on the effect of missionaries on the health of nations, sociologist Robert Woodbury came to a conclusion that he did not expect. He said it landed on him like an atomic bomb. His quote. After all his sociological research, he concluded that the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. Further, interestingly, Woodbury contrasted the work of conversionary Protestant missionaries with Protestant clergy who were financed by the state and Catholic missionaries prior to the 1960s, and he observed areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. By conversionary, like gospel preaching missionaries. So we should not be surprised by this sociologist's findings. For we know that the fruit of faithful disciple making, the salvation of people's souls, is inevitable transformation of people's lives and families and communities. And if that's true, then we can't keep this good news to ourselves. 
We cannot be content to sit back as casual cultural Christians who spend the majority of our Christian lives as spectators in services that cater to our comforts. Where we may give our offerings, but the majority of them will be spent on places for us to meet, professionals to do ministry, and programs that revolve around us and our preferences. This is not God's design for His church. He has not called any one of us to come, be baptized, and sit in one location. He has commanded us, every one of us, to go, baptize, and make disciples in all the nations. Nations that are filled with impoverished communities, abandoned orphans, lonely widows, and over a 100,000 babies dying in the womb every single day. So let us do something. You say, what shall we do? The answer is what Jesus has told us to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And in obedience to this commission from Christ, among many other things, the nations will see the compassion of Christ for unwanted children. I think about a mom who lives in one of those nations, the country of China. Over 35,000 children are ripped from wombs every day in China. Over half of the women there have had at least one abortion. Some of these abortions are voluntary, others mandatory. As government officials have enforced abortion to ensure population control. So I don't know details about this particular mom, but I do know that when she became pregnant, she believed she was not able to take care of her child Yet counter to her culture, she refused to have an abortion. Instead, she brought her child to term and gave birth to a precious little girl on her own. Then she took that newborn baby girl, wrapped her in a light blue cloth, placed her in a brown paper box, and in the middle of the night laid her in front of an orphanage for children with special needs. The orphanage found this baby girl the next morning and conducted a search for her mother only to come up empty. I don't know who that mom is, but I thank God for her. Because of her courage to refuse abortion and because of her compassion for the unborn, a little girl was able to live. And every day when I come home from work, that little girl comes running up to me with a smile spread across her face, jumps into my arms, yells, Daddy, and gives me the biggest bear hug you can imagine. Every child is precious. Every child is cherished by Christ. Just like I sang with my kids the other night during family worship, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. He loves them. So let's show them his love. Let's spend our lives and churches in obedience to his commission until the day when Christ our King will come. And among many other glorious realities on that day, the murder of innocent children will be no more. Come, worship Jesus. Come. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. To join us in the pro-life movement and find out more information about the 2017 Evangelicals for Life conference, visit evangelicals.life.